Well, good morning. Good morning. Thanks, Dell. It's all good. It's all good. It is 9:31. Let's get started in the book of Philemon. I need a megaphone. I have one in my office, actually. It makes police siren noises. One time I used it in the office, and one of the guys came by. What's going on? Are there cops here? No, there's no, no cops here. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks. Good morning, Dave. Welcome to our Sunday school class. We are looking into the letter to Philemon from the Apostle Paul. Last, or the, for the first four and a half weeks, we talked about literary structure. There are various literary devices that go into the structuring of different passages and even entire books of the Bible. Chiastic structure, covenantal structure, there's other ones too. There are structures that follow the pattern of creation. You think the seven days of creation? There are entire books or past sections that follow the seven-day creation pattern. And then there's other ones too. It's so fascinating the way that the Lord inspired these authors to organize what they wrote. But in Philemon, we have a chiasm and we have covenantal structure. And then the second half of last week, we began talking about the background to the book itself, context, purpose, themes, uh, that type of nature. So a quick recap of last week. Our author is, of course, the Apostle Paul. He identifies himself as the author, but he mentions Timothy as well. If you're in Philemon verse 1, just a reminder, Philemon is right before Hebrews, if you are looking for it, right after the Timothys, the Thessalonians, the Titus, then you will get Philemon, not Philemon, Philemon. So he is the one who is writing this, and evidently he's writing it from prison. And what we went over is that he wrote this letter the same time that he wrote two other letters. What were those two letters? Colossians and Ephesians. That's right. Now, do you remember some of the textual evidence for how we know that he wrote all these at the same time? He does mention prison. This is good. Is there any other link in the evidence there? The messenger of the letters. Ah, and who is the messenger of the letters? Uh, Archippus? Nope. You probably can't see that from the back. Tychicus. I'm not 100% sure if you're supposed to hard pronounce the CH there, but I am. I'm English, so that's how it works. Tychicus is the one who is delivering these letters. We learn this from Ephesians 6 as well as Colossians 4. Now, we looked at this, this here map, my beautiful map that I didn't erase because it's so beautiful. These are some of the things that we learned. Paul is way up here in Rome, wherever Rome is, way up here. He's, he's imprisoned up here. And he sent Tychicus to go down, and he was going to deliver a letter to Ephesus. After he delivers that letter, and by the way, the year of this is 62 AD, then Tychicus was going to go along and come to the Tri-City area. And the Tri-City, Hierapolis, Laodicea, Colossae, he was going to come here, he was going to bring a letter to Laodicea, a letter to Colossae, and then in Colossians 4... 
he says something kind of interesting that's just a few books to the left of Philemon. In Colossians chapter 4, in verse 7, he says, Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. So that, that's good. In verse 10, right before verse 10, verse 9, and with him is Onesimus. Onesimus is relevant because back in our letter to Philemon, Onesimus is the slave who is being referred to. So we have that connection. And then verse 10, he mentions Aristarchus is in prison with me. These other guys that he mentions are not in prison with him. That would be Mark, Jesus, who's called Justice. Uh, he's got Demas. He's got Luke. He says, give, verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha. The Nympha is the, the lady whose house the church is meeting at in Laodicea. And when this letter has been read among you, when Colossians has been read in Colossae, have it read also to the Laodiceans. So just one city over, read it to them, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So Paul's also writing a letter to Laodicea. So he's not just delivering three letters. He's act Tychicus is actually delivering four letters. Ephesians, Colossians, um, Three letters. Ephesians, Colossians, Laodicea. Um, yeah. And he says, read this letter to, to them. Oh, and Philemon. That was the fourth one. Right. Four letters. And say, verse 17, say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So we have a few names mentioned in Colossians 4 that are repeated in Philemon. If you go to the end of Philemon, who are some of the names there? Epaphras, verse 23 in Philemon. Epaphras, my fellow servant in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. What did we learn about Epaphras last week? Remember what Epaphras is significant for? I think he was liked. His mom probably liked him. <laughs> no, no, Epaphras is good. He's a good guy. So, a fellow prisoner. He's, a fe he's up there in Rome. We know that he's up there in Rome with Paul, but he had something to do with what went on down here. See, if you read Acts, we know that Paul spent about three years in Ephesus, uh, ministering to the church. He planted the church, all that type of stuff. But he's not the one who planted the church at Colossae. You remember what it had said that the church here, they had heard the word of the Lord from one of you, and the one of you was Epaphras. Epaphras was converted by Paul near Ephesus, heard the preaching of the gospel, and planted the church in Colossae. Paul had never went there. As far as we know, he had never went there, but he certainly had not been there prior to 62 AD. And he's a prisoner at that point, martyred just a few years later, so he may never have gotten down. We don't know. We know that in Philemon, he's trying to get down. You'll remember, or perhaps you'll remember, but in verse 22 of Philemon, he says, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. So we know that he wants to go from Rome down to Colossae. And the reason that we know Philemon is in Colossae is because of the whole uh, one of you thing. Um, we know that they are Colossians. So, they're going to read the letters and all that. Tychicus is going to deliver the letter. Onesimus is with him. 
Onesimus is going to see them in Ephesus. He's going to go down to Colossae, and that's where everything's going to go down with Philemon with the request that he is making. There is an alternate view of what's going on. See, the primary view is that Philemon, the church is meeting in his house in Colossae, and we read in verse 1 or in verse uh, 1 and 2 that Aphia, our sister, is with him, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. Pretty much universally, Aphia is considered to be the wife of Philemon, that they are a married couple. The house, the, the church meets in their house. Uh, Philemon may or may not be the actual minister there. He likely is, but we don't know for sure. And Archippus, our fellow soldier, traditionally the view is that Archippus is their son. That he is a young man who is obviously getting into the ministry. Because you'll remember in Colossians 4, he says to tell Archippus to, uh, to do the ministry that has been given to him. Um, what does it say down there? And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. That was in Colossians 4. So Archippus is clearly going into the ministry or already in it of some kind. But traditionally we understand that he is the son of Philemon and Aphia. And this letter is just to Philemon. Onesimus is a runaway slave. And Paul is trying to rectify the situation, which was a very dangerous thing. We'll get into that probably next week. And so that's, that's kind of the view that is dominant. However... There is another one, an Edgar Goodspeed, which might be the best last name I've ever heard. He is a theologian who presented an alternate view that as though, even though it is called the letter of Paul to Philemon, it's only mentioning Philemon first because the church is in his house. It's like respecting like the head of the house type thing. But it's actually directed to Archippus himself. And Archippus is not their son, but the pastor in the church, but not the church in Colossae, but actually the church in Laodicea. The reason that they say this was back in Colossians 4, we have the talk about this letter to the Laodiceans. Do you have in your Bible Paul's letter to the Laodiceans? It's not there. Why isn't it there? We lost the letter? Well, we have lost letters from Paul before. We know that Paul at least wrote a third letter to the Corinthians. It's mentioned, but we don't have it. So evidently, we, the Lord allows us to lose some of the written material of the apostles. But the theory is that Archippus is a pastor who knows Philemon well, and after the whole addressing Philemon, he's actually writing this to Archippus, and Onesimus was a runaway slave but needs to be reconciled, and this letter is the letter to Laodicea because Archippus is the pastor of Laodicea. That's why he's saying back in Colossians, take, fulfill the ministry that's been given to you, that he's the pastor in Laodicea. This is the lost letter to the Laodiceans. Reconcile with this guy. And here's the further part of the theory. Paul's letters had already been circulating. They're going all over the Roman, the Mediterranean world. His letters are going everywhere. But nobody had collected all of Paul's letters in one library yet. That didn't happen until the 90s. And in the early mid-90s, you start having this one bishop from Ephesus who starts collecting all of Paul's letters in one library. And the bishop of Ephesus, guess what his name is? Onesimus. 
Interesting. So in this theory, Archippus is the pastor of Laodicea. He connects back with the runaway slave Onesimus, who then later on in life, some 30 years later, ends up being the bishop of Ephesus to complete the whole redemption that's going on here. And he starts collecting Paul's letters, which makes a, a whole lot of sense. It's somebody who was personally redeemed by Paul and had this type of ministry. He ends up going into the ministry himself, would start collecting Paul's letters. His name is Onesimus. And that answers a pretty interesting and relevant question. Why was this letter kept? Philemon. And so the theory is that Onesimus himself went into the ministry later on, became a bishop of Ephesus, started collecting Paul's letters in the 90s, and that answers the question of why Philemon is kept, because it was about his own redemption. Of course he would collect and save and preserve this letter. I love that theory. I think it is, it tickles the story part of my innards. It's a wonderful story. However, it's probably not true. <laughs> That's the unfortunate part. I want it to be true, but it probably isn't. Um, there's a couple reasons why. Number one, the letter of Philemon pretty well appears to be written to Philemon and not to Archippus. Usually you're more clear if you're going to, you would want to be more clear if you're actually directing it to somebody else and not the one that you're first mentioning. Uh, Another consideration is that the name Onesimus was a very, very common name. That's almost like saying in the year 2050, Tyler from Miami started collecting letters from some guy. Oh, that could have been the Tyler from Windsor 30 years before. Or it could have been a couple hundred thousand other Tylers. So you're really stretching to make this type of case. I love it for the story aspect, but uh, unfortunately it's probably not a correct theory. So the traditional one, it's written to Philemon. Archippus is probably his son who is in the ministry now. And uh, Onesimus is supposed to be reconciled to the house that he ran away from. And so let's talk a, a moment about Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave belonging to Philemon. Internal evidence suggests he was not a very good slave. We know that from verse 10 and 11. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, and, uh, uh, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Evidently, he is not a very good worker. Uh, maybe he had a bad attitude. We don't know what it is. Clearly, he was not a believer, though. We know that a point comes when Onesimus obviously runs away and finds himself in Rome. Now, how, riddle me this, how does a runaway slave from Colossae even afford to get to Rome? How is he protected on the roads? How can he pay for it? What does he do when he gets to Rome? How, do you, how does he do this? What, did he, what, what do you have had to do? Stole. Stowaway. Stow 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 oh, stowaway. Could have been a stowaway. But what does Paul say that he's going to do on behalf of Onesimus later on in the letter? He says, if he owes you, 
anything, charge that to my account. Verse 18. Evidently, Paul knows that Onesimus owes Philemon. What does he owe him? We don't, we're not told exactly what it is, but the fact that he's saying charge it to my account means that it's probably more than just the social dynamic. Like, oh, you hurt his feelings, you hurt his trust. Like, when he's saying charge it to my account, that seems to imply he probably stole some money or stole some goods and then sold it. Like, he doesn't, got a, he doesn't have a car. He doesn't have a plane. He doesn't have a train. How does a slave who has nothing from Colossae end up in Rome? Probably stole, and that's how he provided his way to get to Rome. So he stole from him, probably took belongings as well. We don't know exactly what. But while he's in Rome, providentially, he comes across the path of a prisoner named Paul. And this is where we start seeing some really interesting ways about the way that the Lord works sovereignly. We know that Philemon himself is a convert of Paul's. He says... In verse 19, I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Whatever Onesimus owes to Philemon, money, possessions, maybe he has to get over the emotional hurt that's there. It is, you charge that on one side, it doesn't even come close to what Paul did for Philemon himself. Like, what I gave to you, was the word of the gospel for your soul. That's a lot more valuable than a few of the belongings that this guy took and brought to Rome. Now, when Anisimus is in Rome, he doesn't know Paul. He's not even a Christian at that point. One way that we... Actually, let me ask you. How would we know that Anisimus is not a Christian at this point? What would give us a clue? The fact that he's now very useful to him. Ah, so before, he's not very useful, but now he's very useful. What does that, why do you say that? What makes you think that that gives us a clue? Because now he's a fellow worker in, in the Lord, fellow ministry partner. Aha, that's right. He says he's useful as a brother in the Lord. No long, Verse 16, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. So he used to be just a bondservant, but now he's more than that. He's a brother. So that gives us one clue. I think there's another clue, too, connected to what you said about him being useless before. What does that imply? No longer. Before, no longer. So there was evidently a change. That's for sure. But I think another thing, if Anisimus is a Christian, before he leaves, what kind of worker would he be? probably be a, a useful worker. Are Christians supposed to be productive in their work sites? Are we supposed to provide value for our employers? Are we supposed to work honestly? Not steal from our employers, not log in extra hours that we didn't actually work? Be lazy on the job? These are not the characteristics of a Christian worker. I believe it is Paul who is the one who says, work as unto the Lord. This is irrespective of your position. You could be the lowest of the the lowest of society working the crummiest of jobs. 
but it is supposed to be your redeemed heart that is shining through even in the worst working circumstances as well as when you're in a period of tremendous blessing and you are in the perfect job. It, it doesn't change the fact that we work as unto the Lord. And so it doesn't, it doesn't make sense that Onesimus would be a very useless poor worker if he was already a believer before leaving. Plus, to do the type of thing that he did is not very indicative of, of Christian behavior. Tyler, does verse 10 have anything to do with it either? When it says, whose father I became in imprisonment, does he mean father as in I became a father figure, or is that a spiritual father? That's a pretty big giveaway. Uh, it is a pretty big one, too. Well, we know that it's not. He's literally my son. Right. So Paul didn't have Onesimus as a, as a literal child. But Paul is the apostle who speaks so much in familial language when it comes to our, our bonds of faith together, that we can be like fathers, spiritual fathers and spiritual sons to one another. I think it's 1 John 2 that talks about spiritual fathers and spiritual sons. So that's, that's a keen insight as well. Paul became a father to Onesimus out there. Which, if you look at it from Onesimus' perspective, he probably doesn't know anybody in Rome. He's just, I need to get away from here. My life's on the line if they find me. I, I'm get, where can I disappear? Biggest city I can think of. I'm going to Rome. I can disappear there. I can probably find some work to scrap together some, some food. And what do you know? Who else is kind of the dumps of society at that point is Paul, who's a prisoner, but is given some social freedoms. He was uh, under house arrest, but a pretty generous leash of house arrest. Comes across Paul, and Paul sees a guy in trouble and becomes like a father to him. And I think that the way that he became a father to him is probably a whole lot more than just one sense. Think of the people who you hold in the highest esteem, especially if you're younger, or maybe if you're older and you can remember those who who were before you. Do you have anybody who was so important to you that even though they're not a blood relative, they were like a father or like a mother to you? Like a second family to you? I think a lot of us can think of that one person or those two people who went so out of their way, they provided for us maybe in a tough financial spot, but they were more than that. They were like a home. They gave mentoring. They were there to listen when we were spinning out of control. All sorts of ways that a good mentor will be, in basic, be an impartation of grace to you, that God is ministering to you through them. So to, to say that somebody is like a spiritual mother or a spiritual father, I think that encompasses a whole lot of different ways that you impacted an individual, more than just, he preached the gospel to me. But if you're preaching the gospel, now I'm going to follow up and help you apply gospel living in your marriage. I'm going to apply it in the way that you parent, in the way that you work, even unto a bad employer. We're even going to apply gospel thinking to a runaway slave whose life could be on the line and send him back a couple thousand kilometers back to Colossae. You need to make this right because you made it wrong. And now... <clears throat> I need to make a point about restitution. Being forgiven by Christ is a very beautiful thing. 
If you think about what being forgiven by God means, it is implying that you owe a debt to God. Is it true that we owe a debt to God? We absolutely do. We are sinful creatures who go against the direct commands of our Creator. We owe Him our full obedience. And from our first breaths, we are corrupt and going against Him. From our first words, we are already speaking against the Lord. In our thoughts, our attitudes, we pile up this debt against our Creator from the earliest years. Not only do we owe him because we have piled up this debt, we owe him all the more because he cancels our debt. And he doesn't cancel it just, oh, okay, I'm just going to forgive. No, 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 no. He paid the debt. His, God's version of canceling a debt is paying for it. It's not, let's just make it go away. If you are going to clear a debt, you have to pay what you owe. So, the point that I'm making here, being forgiven by Christ does not cancel the human ramifications for sin. If you wronged somebody, you took from somebody, you stole, you offended, you broke a relationship, whatever it was, but you were not, say you weren't a Christian, and then you come to the Lord, that doesn't just cancel out everything that you did. Your, your debt is forgiven before God, but you're still, you still have to deal with the ramifications for what you did to another person. Canceling sin does not equal canceling restitution. See Luke 19. Please turn to Luke chapter 19. Verse 10. Verse 1, 2, 10, that is. Sorry, verse 1, 2, 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and beho- Jesus, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down, excuse me, and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Imagine Jesus being the guest of sinners. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold, four times over. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. See, for Zacchaeus here, he understands, at least in part, the person who he has in his who he's with, who's right there dining with him. I owe a debt to all the people I defrauded while I was a tax collector, but my bigger debt is to the man who's right here and has the ability to cleanse me of sin. So he, gets, he has his sins cleansed, but there's a connection between faith 
and works, and it's not the connection as in my faith is going to be only valid or true because I am a worker and I have earned the right to faith. That's not the right relationship of faith and works, but rather I have faith and the Lord has granted me this faith and therefore evidence of that faith will be the works. It'll be the result of faith. Jesus doesn't say that salvation came to the house until after Zacchaeus said, I'm giving back, I'm giving it all back. Anybody that I cheated, anybody I stole from, that I owe restitution to, I pay it back fourfold. The law did not demand that he pay it back fourfold. There are Old Testament laws about restitution. He did not have to pay four times back. He did have to pay more than what he took, but not four times. He chose to do four times. But the connection is, Christ recognizes that, he's the author of this stuff, that our good works are going to be what we walk into because of our faith. Ephesians 2.10, we walk into the good works that have been prepared beforehand for us. But those good works are the result of faith, not meritus of faith. And so he already is given the gift of faith, and then he says, I'm going to do restitution. I'm going to pay back everybody. Christ sees the connection, faith works, salvation has come to this house. And it's a very beautiful story. How that is relevant to Philemon is because this runaway slave steals from his master, probably takes belongings, probably sells those belongings, goes to Rome, and owes a pretty big debt. And even though his sins are forgiven before the Lord when he became Paul's son in his, during his time in Rome, he still owes Philemon. That debt has to be paid. If you owe anybody a debt before coming to Christ here on earth, even after you come to Christ, you still owe them that debt. Now, one thing to also keep in mind about restitution. There is no biblical evidence for grand scale restitution from entire groups of people to another entire group of people. We don't have evidence of that in scripture. It is, I personally took from you, I personally owe you, and I owe you more than what I took. It goes back to the Exodus restitution laws. So restitution is a very biblical thing. I heard one pastor say, he was asked a question, how do we know when revival has come to our land? How will we know it? We always pray for revival, but how do we know when it's come? When preachers are shouting from the rooftops again, losing their voices and screaming? Is that how we know? No. He said, you know that widespread revival is taking place when large companies and wealthy people who have taken from others start making restitution. I thought that was a very interesting thing to say. That would be a complicated thing to work out. But anybody who got where they are by defrauding and stealing from others starts seeking to make restitution. That's how you know widespread revival. It's one of the signs that you start seeing it take place. I thought that was fascinating. I have to, I have to think about that even more. But I just think it's interesting. This restitution is a Christian thing to somebody who you personally owe something to. All right, let's move on to other context, purpose, themes of Philemon. If I were to ask you, what do you think the major themes are of this 25-verse letter? What do you think a major theme is? So a theme could be love, a theme could be forgiveness, a theme could be 
restitution. If you just take the basic request that is being made here, what, what would you think the theme is of Philemon? What's Paul trying to teach us on a principle level? Restoration. Restoration. I have almost the exact same words in mind. I just changed it a little bit. Philemon is an archetype of redemption. Redemption. If you look at the basic request that is being made, it is somebody who was in a certain position. He was in the house. He had the gifts of the house. He, well, we don't know what exactly that relationship was like in detail, but he's in the house. He leaves the house, squanders. He's in a pretty desperate situation, comes to faith through the ministry of Paul, comes on back, and we don't quite know for sure how this story ends, unless the theory, the other theory is right. Then we know it has a happy ending. We're assuming it has a happy ending, but he gets sent back, and he is restored if the story goes as we think it goes. Does that remind you of another story in the Bible? A Somebody in the house leaves with money, squanders it. Prodigal son. Hey, prodigal son. Thank you, Carolyn. Isn't that a whole lot like Luke 15? The useless, worthless, helpless son leaves the house, demands the money of the inheritance before his father even dies. What a slap in the face leaves off to go do his own thing, squanders it all, comes to his senses, makes his way back. One of the things that I think is funny about the prodigal son story is he doesn't come back, treat me as a son of this house again. You know, give me the robe, give me the ring. I, your son, have returned. You know, put it all on me. Give me the purple. Give it all. No, he says, the slaves of this house get good treatment. I, I, I'm going to go back. Treat me as, as a slave of this house. I don't, I don't deserve to be the son of this house. That's not what the father does. He comes, obviously he runs out, greets him, embraces him, gives him the ring, gives, gives him all of that. It is complete redemption in that story. An archetype follows into a type, of course. What we get all over scripture is this story of redemption. Sons or uh, this is a biblical term, I'm not cussing. Bastard sons will leave. They're illegitimate. They, are, they make wrecks of themselves, bring shame to their families. And then they come to a point. They're at rock bottom. And the Lord saves them in these worst of circumstances, the most worthless of people. He takes what was useless and makes it useful. That's exactly what happens in our story of Onesimus. And we see that, obviously, in the prodigal son. And that is every one of us. Every one of us is illegitimate in the family until we are made legitimate by God himself. We are made sons of God. I love the talk in the New Testament about the family of Christ and how we are family members of each, uh, with each other, but the relationship of us before God, we are sons and daughters of the king. But before you were a son and daughter, you were Onesimus. 
Before you're a son or daughter, you're the son who goes off and squanders everything, all of his father's inheritance. You're the one who piles up the debt. It's an archetype of redemption. And if I were to ask you, what is the main theme of all of the Bible? Most people's answers is the story of redemption. So this is an archetype of redemption. We see this story play out time and time and time again. And it is a beautiful story. But you're not Philemon in this story. You're not Archippus. You're not Timothy. We are Anisimus in this, in this story. The second thing, another theme of this letter, is that Philemon is a letter of reconciliation. And this is, of course, reconciliation in human relationships. When you come to Christ, when you are restored, when you become useful, when you become a son, you do not become a hermit in a desert and ignore everybody. There is certainly something to be said for not being too involved in worldly affairs and you, you take time away to go to the mountain or to the desolate place to pray following the example of Christ. But you do not become an island. You are not your own guy, accountable to nobody, and not close to anybody, and your arms reach, and nobody can come in. I am my own fortress. You can all stay away from me. I am uh, introvert, and no one can come in. We can make a lot of excuses for not letting people in. And that's why I have some qualms with the extrovert-introvert thing. We can use a psychological term to justify keeping people out. Oh, I'm, I'm just an introvert. No, you're a son or daughter of the king, and we are your brothers and sisters. We are supposed to fulfill the, the one another's, love one another, bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, all these types of things. Oh, I'm an introvert. I, I, I don't do that. You're a son or daughter of the king. We are family members of one another. You do do that. We do not become islands. Rather, we are reconciled to one another. And if you have sinned against another, when you come to the Lord, you... With, with another believer, believers are commanded to reconcile with one another. So definitely this is reconciliation of, uh, on the human level. Of course, there is the spiritual reconciliation as well, but that falls better under redemption. So as Christians, we are to reconcile with one another. And then finally, Philemon is a letter of transformation. And that is different. It's a letter of transformation. One of the big questions that comes up about this book is, this letter is talking about slavery. The word is doulos. And a lot of translations will take the word doulos, that Greek word, and render it servant. Or if they're a little bit more precise, they'll say bond servant. What does doulos mean? Slave. Means slave. Now there are contextually sometimes bond servant might be a little more accurate, but 95% of the time it's just talking about a pure old slave. What you would think of, no rights, treated like crap, uh, no protection of the law, American ch chattel slavery, basically, which is different than Hebrew slavery in Exodus, and we'll talk about that when we actually get into the, the verses. But here is the Apostle Paul, minister of Christ, led by the Holy Spirit, 
gets to give divine revelation to church, the, the church for centuries, for a millennia. Here's his chance. Let, let's do social upending. Let's upend the whole institution. Uh, let, let's revolt. This is his chance to say, enough of all of this. He doesn't do it. And that frustrates people. This is his chance to take social action, to, pr- to bring the social gospel, to change the way, all the, the injustices that are in society. This is his chance. And he doesn't quite take it. Why doesn't he take it? Well, I think we have to keep a few things in mind. If you were here last night, we watched the movie Puritan. Some of you were here. And John Piper at one point starts talking. He's like, he's talking about John Edwards. He's like, I love Jonathan Edwards. And all, this is my Piper voice. And he's so gospel oriented. But I look at one of the parts of his, his holiness that isn't quite developed. You know, the tentacles of holiness, his arm of treating human beings, uh, because he owned a slave at one point in his life. So I look at that and I say, he didn't quite go far enough, but I look at everything else, and he outpaces all of us in holiness in every other part. Now, I can look at him in my 21st century lens and say that I would have done it better. I think I'm getting Southern now. (laughs) (laughs) I could look at him and put the standards of today onto him couple hundred years ago in the 1700s. It's a different world. It's a different society. You don't just change things and put your own. That's called anachronism. I'm putting my standards and my understandings on a prior generation and a prior society. And he said that even though Edwards might not have gone far enough in that part of his holiness, what are they going to say about us in about 100 years in about 200 years with the blind spots that we have of today. And what he started talking about was abortion. Are they going to look at the works of John Piper in 100 years and say, look how great he was in all these different things, but abortion, what did he do? Did he do enough? Did Edwards do enough to stop slavery? Did Paul do enough to stop slavery? Did Onesimus do do enough? Are we doing enough to stop abortion? See, we are going to be judged in the future. They're going to look back at us and look at our blind spots. And Piper was saying he loses sleep over this. Like, am I, is everything I've written, all my sermons, going to be tossed into the garbage because we had abortion at this time? Because abortion isn't going to go on forever. It's a barbaric institution that is going to collapse. It's going to take some time, but it will collapse. And we will be looked back on by future Christians, and they will wonder, what did the 21st century church in Canada and USA and Europe and the rest of the world do at this moment? Most of us, we're going to look back, they're going to look back at us like we look back at some of those Puritans, some of the early Americans. They didn't do enough to end this. They could have done it, and they didn't. They're going to look at us the same way with our social evils. But that... It's not to stop it. It's not to protest and hold signs and say, hey, this is wrong. We know it's wrong. Our role is to win people to Christ one at a time. So we've got it backwards if we think abortion is, or any other malady that we have in society, if we're going to try and stop it, we're beating up the wrong track. Christ didn't stop it in his time. He did nothing that way. 
What was his call? Come and save the lost. That's our call. So, does it really matter what they think of us on abortion or any other matter that way? Not, maybe society might, but not God the Father. Would you agree that a Christian with a fully formed Christian worldview would pursue biblical justice in the way that they live their life? Well, what's biblical justice? Protecting babies in the womb? I would say, I see what you're saying. We can't put the cart before the horse. We are not Christians who are going out there trying to upend all of society. That's been one of the points I'm trying to make. We don't take on a social gospel first. Uh, social action, social justice, doing issues of cultural justice can be an outflow of consistent faith, but it's not what drives us. We're not going to correct every social evil that's out there. Uh, so definitely, we're not calling people just, hey, stop, stop aborting babies. We're saying, come to faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, we're going to protect these innocent babies while we're doing all of this. I, I don't think it's a either or. I, no, I'm not saying it's neither or, but we've got the cart before the horse if we think we're going to go out and, and stop this particular. Get mm -hmm. Yes. If we think we're going to stop it all? Well, Christ is going to stop it. Sorry. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Christ will reign until every enemy is put under his feet. Is killing children in the womb an enemy of Christ? Of course it's an enemy of Christ. He is coming to destroy it. And he will destroy it. But he uses the means. He uses his church. He uses the gospel to go out to convict, to convict us of our sin. Um, I do appreciate the comment. I think that, that, that is a good, that is a co good comment. That, that's been a tension for the last two and a half years. Uh, I struggled with this myself. I heard something two weeks ago that really rang a bell. Uh, and that is that our politics is largely what determines how I will love my neighbor in many ways. And so it's very difficult to divorce the gospel from politics. Yeah. What prevails when good men do nothing? What prevails? Evil. Evil prevails when good men do nothing, Catherine said. Now, do you keep note that the transformation is number three on this list here. Number one is redemption. And then you can get down to talking about what needs some transforming. The final point I want to make about this is that Paul, a lot of theologians and scholars will say that Paul is laying the groundwork for what could be the end of the, the slavery institution, but it would have been absolutely chaotic for him to call for the absolute end of it. Uh, this is mostly about redemption and reconciliation first, then we'll talk about the social stuff. If he would have just said, no more of, the, no more of this entire institution that makes up the entire world at that point, that's all they knew, uh, to, do, to do that, the Christians would have been seen as a radical political sect and not primarily one about, about the gospel, about forgiveness of sin, which then goes into the politics. So a lot of different considerations, but yeah, I think we'll have to leave it there. I'm already a couple minutes over. Let's pray and go to worship. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us here. I thank you for this letter that has been preserved for us. Thank you that we can learn from it today and that you are in the business of redeeming broken sinners such as ourselves. I pr pray that you would prepare our hearts for worship now. Let us worship you with thankfulness and gladness. Amen. Thank you.